Hey everybody, Aaron here. Bad news and good news. The bad news is that our last episode, episode 36, had a video problem and we weren't able to recover the original source. Sucks, I know, but the good news is that we were basically finalizing the last of our side mission and so not a lot happened. So I'm going to give you a quick recap of what you missed. If you remember, the crew of the Indefatigable had left, they were headed to Apaste, where they were looking for something that Alnast Galleon Core, this mysterious drow, had left for them on Apaste. Turns out, it's a new starship. If you remember what the old starship looks like, this is the Bereth Nagal, this is the ship that the players own. And the mysterious message that they found on their ship led them to Apaste, where they found a new ship. It looks like this. This is the Bereth Entor. Obviously, these ships are sister ships, and in fact, they fit together and look pretty freaking cool. They look like this. So, that's where the players were headed. Towards the end of this mission, they had arrived at a cavern where they found this ship. And there was a battle with Dylanistra Rykas, this pink mohawked drow. And the crew boarded the Bereth Entor and headed into space only to be attacked by two fi pink fighters that look a little bit like this. Obviously, these fighters were part of Dylanistra's crew. They were set there so that if and when the PCs left, the crew left, that they would be able to fight them and hopefully destroy their ship before they got away. Combat was pretty intense, but it was interrupted by a giant capital ship with the call sign Bone Crusher and a gruff message to cease fire immediately and stop thrusters. The remaining fighter, because one of the fighters was defeated, and if you want to see what this looks like, this is where the battle took place. Looks a little bit like this. Uh, two fighters in space with the breath and tour leaving. The second fighter that was still alive chose not to heed the warnings of the Bone Crusher and was shot with a single railgun out of the sky. Then the Bone Crusher demanded, this capital ship demanded, that the crew explain themselves and why they had no registered transponder. After a short explanation and a call with Seobarn, one of their contacts with House Zyzerer on Aposte, the captain of the Bone Crusher was convinced and th that their purpose on Aposte was legitimate and he let them go. Fast forward two days and we arrive back at Absalom Station where the crew is hoping that their Starship, the original Breath Nagal, has been uh, fully repaired. It's been at Dock 37 for a while now. Um, in the meantime, there was a little bit of a follow-up on this auto-implantation that was requested from Grav, the strange human that Twick had met in the bar, uh, the Night Cube, while they were on Apaste. So, uh, Luna rested because she was down hit points while Ko, Lisk, and Twick perused the offerings in the free markets before they met a guy, a Sheeran named Vriskin. He's the sole owner of Renew You, which is a cybernetic augmentation clinic. After learning that Renew You was in fact the sole manufacturer of these auto implantations, um, Twick bought a rending talon, which was the thing that Grav had requested from him, and asked Riskin to hold out until tomorrow so he could get the funds to buy an auto implantation himself. The episode ended with the crew heading to bed in hopes of departing on their ship to their much needed vacation at the resort of New Elysium in the Diaspora. And episode 37 picks up right there with also the brand new AP that we're starting, which we're so excited to share with you guys. Um, Absolutely excited for this AP. It's going to be a wild one. Before we get to that, though, I did want to put together a kind of recap of 
some of the stories that we've interacted with uh, in our characters developing throughout the first 36 episodes. Uh, so it's all kind of fresh on our mind as we're heading into the new AP. Some of the stories you hear may be familiar, some of them you may have forgotten about, but all of these are going to kind of start tying together a little bit more now that we're in our second of three APs. So without further ado, we hope you enjoy it, and here's a quick recap. Okay, uh, so here we are. Um, if you just imagine, if you will, uh, we're kind of fading in from black somewhere in the vast on a starship. Uh, the yellow light flashes rhythmically, on, off, on, off, wait two seconds, repeat. The science officer of the Great Spalo doesn't notice it. Captain, still nothing on sensors, she sighs. Sector 34A appears clear. Captain Flueva, who is a Lashunta Karasha with a decorated history of the stewards, stands near the science officer station with a tired but determined look on his face. Uh, thanks for the update. Uh, listen, people. Headquarters gave us these coordinates as the last detected location for the signal. And until we cover the whole area, we're not headed back home. I suggest you get situated and work efficiently on the task at hand. Stay focused, work smart, and we'll be back at Absalom before you know it. Blueva is frustrated with the menial tasking that headquarters gave him, but he's never ever turned down an order from strength unity from unity strength, after all. Captain! I've got the sensor ping from a fast move off our starboard bow, 800 kilometer out. Looks like they were flying dark, turned on a reactor, and now they're headed straight for us, full bore. Try to heal them. No response. I am detecting energy surge, however, uncertain as to its origin. Any transponder ID? The captain yells as the klaxons begin firing. The Great Spalo has detected a target lock and initiated scattering countermeasures, which seem to, for the time being, doing their job. The science officer waits for a few minutes and the ship is scanned. Well, says the captain, nothing. Computer doesn't recognize the whole drive signature either. Sensor and imaging data incoming. She's now 600 kilometer out. The view screen comes to life with the image of a hostile starship. Blueva's demeanor changes from concern to Confused. In all the years he's been flying for the stewards, he's never seen a ship like this one. The hull design is sleek, but utilitarian. Unfamiliar patterns etched into the bare metal contrast bright green accents. The thruster plume is an even more intense fluorescent green. The ship's markings, hull, and drive signature all appear to be unidentifiable to the AI. And as the captain pans over the image to get better angles from Im for image capture of the ship, a bright flash appears on the screen near an exposed tendril of the port side of the approaching ship. Incoming! Brace for impact! Yells the science officer. In mere seconds, the tungsten tantalum round rips through the starboard hull, missing the reactor core by mere centimeters, but completely leveling the cooling array before exiting the port side of the gracious Spalo. The ensuing chaos is immediately felt. Engineers standing next to water tanks were killed instantly. Their flight suit remnants now float in the control room. Temporary force fields activate to prevent more oxygen from rushing out of the ship. Red lights flash on every single console. It doesn't take the captain long to realize that the core has lost its ability to cool down and will overload unless a complete shutdown is initiated. They're charging the railgun again, Captain! 400 kilometer! The science officer screams. Without hesitation, the captain turns to the chief mate. Prepare the escape pods for departure. With the weapons we have on board, we're no match for the ship. I'm going to give you as much time as I can. Get these people to the closest planet and radio for help. The Tay Nadari should be close by. The first mate doesn't move. 
Are you listening? Get to the escape pods and go now, yells the captain as he slams his hand down on the console in front of the chair, activating the evacuation protocol. The red lights immediately turn to a shade of blue, a selection most likely made by the shipbuilders to calm crew members, and slowly pulse towards the bridge exit. They should provide adequate wayfinding to keep those in shock headed in the right direction. The first mate jolts back to life and commands the bridge crew to get to the escape pods. The entire command deck moves hastily along the route, def defined by the pulsating blue lights. Transferring critical controls to you, Captain. Good luck, science officer says as she sprints towards the exit. It's been an The science officer's lips mouth the word honor, but no sound is heard as there's no longer a consistent or dense enough medium on which sound can travel. In an instant, the science officer is ripped out of the side of the command deck and flung into space, in the hole left by the second railgun round. The temporary force fields activate, but while useful in some situations like these, cannot protect against the first few seconds of pressure loss. The sensor ray beeps and indicates the ship is now 200 kilometers away. Rafik, the onboard, uh, or the acronym for the onboard AI, plot a parabolic course and keep the railgun and anything else they may have aimed at the ship and away from the escape pods. We don't want one of those rounds passing through us and hitting the crew. Prepare us for ramming speed. The bright blue plume of the gracious Spalo increases in intensity as the ship lurches forward. Maneuvering thrusters maintain the ship in a constant arc on heading towards the hostile ship, causing the captain to experience approximately 3.2 times the gravitational force of Absalom Station. An orange indicator shows that the reactor core is overheating and has reached near critical condition. And an alarm goes off as the AI detects another energy surge. But this time, however, there won't be enough time to fire. Smaller and slimmer, the gracious Spalo acts basically as a spear, piercing the starboard side of the hostile starship. Metal grinds on metal as Captain Fleva sets the engines to full burn, pushing the core to overload in an effort to scuttle the ship. Klaxons fire yet again for alarms that indicate additional holes in the outer hull and trouble maintaining adequate oxygen levels for crew survival. The emergency warning indicator appears on the captain's HUD, begging for a shutdown of the reactor core. Off in the distance, the first mate and the remaining crew on board, the escape pods look back to see a bright flash as their home, the starship they have lived on, suffers from a core meltdown and explodes. The, the crew stands in silence knowing full well what the captain has done for them. If only the, dis the discordance hadn't brought them out here. Was the hostile ship the origin point? Were they looking for the same things the stewards were? Regardless, that doesn't matter anymore, as the only thing that does now is surviving. A ping is heard on the escape pod's console. The first mate looks down to see that the Tainadari has set course and is a couple hours out. It was a waiting game, after all. Fast forward. 51 years. In the wow. Bastion... On Absalom Station, an attendant at the communications console opens his freshly synthesized cheese and bean stew to prepare for a delicious and relaxing lunch hour. The smell of home calms the Yosoki as he slowly dips a bread roll into the soup, then takes a bite. As he leans back in satisfaction, something on the console catches his eye. The message received indicator is flashing. Nobody uses that emergency channel, he thinks to himself. And he's correct, channel Z191 is a frequency commonly used for tracing pings, not for messages. He touches the console and scams his comms ID badge. A message appears on screen. As he, read, as he reads, the attendant hastily enters a few commands and then promptly jumps to his feet and sprints over to the head comms officer on duty. Sir, we, we, we have a problem. What is it? 
the head's comms officer says. Uh, we, ju- we just received a message from a former steward about an a- attack on the Condus Colony. Z191, I just sent it to you. The head comms officer looks confused. After all, Z191 wasn't typically used to relay messages. He looks down and takes a moment to read. Have you confirmed origin? Uh, y- yes, sir, the attendant says. Nakondis, uh, and uh, a retired steward's ID accompanies the transmission, though I've uh, never never heard of a Sedona before. The head's comms officer looks up. She's a decorated member of this organization, retired with full honors. She deserves the utmost respect. Now, what is the closest ship that we have to the Nakondis? Uh, uh, ap- apologies, sir, and, and uh, n- nothing, sir. Uh, the attendant says as he pulls up a map of the Nacon system in the center display. But there, there is an, a, a, a transport ship with Abdarkov supplies currently en route. The Indefatigable. That will have to do. Send them what we have and ask them if they can observe from a distance. We need to get some intel on what's going on before someone from Overwatch gets there. I'm going to take this up to Major Ivasco. Let's hope they can hold out for the time being. The attendant returns to his desk presses a few buttons on the view screen, and sends the message on its way. Outside, the comms array rotates and rotates and begins transmitting. Directly at the Starstone, the primary drift beacon for Absalom Station. The transmission, it, uh, it, it passes, it changes, uh, and it goes into the stone and it enters into pure darkness. Then flashes of dark purple. Chunks of rock, maybe? Asteroids? Lighter shades of purple. Soon, muted flashes all around that look like explosions as the path the transmission is taking begins to brighten. The void begins to take the shape of a storm-like tunnel of purple and pink. Giant, space station-sized asteroids slam into one another. Abandoned starships and buildings, some that look centuries old, float in and out of the clouds. Objects appear and disappear at random, as if being pulled into other dimensions. Unexpectedly, the transmission passes through a field of static and begins to morph and fade, as if being destabilized by something. It appears as if it is being distorted, and portions are becoming garbled mess. And just as we see the transmission begin to fade out of existence, it slams into the side of a small, metallic disc. It has arrived at the indefatigable, as the console on the bridge displays the following message. Um, so everything's dark. Um, and then all of a sudden we start to hear the sounds of a large crowd cheering, uh, chanting. We fade up to a dingy room lit with flickering yellow lights. Great set out there, says a large half-orc wearing a black t-shirt with the logo of some esoteric metal band on the front. All flames and sharp lines. Oh, give it up, Droger. You and I both know it was terrible. I just can't seem to get over the slump. Luna falls onto the couch that had seen one too many vigorous owners, and less than its fair share of washes. Droger winces and looks to the door. Well, maybe. You know I always like your music. You, You and my mother. My only true fonts. Droger taps his foot, and he looks to the door again. What's, uh, what's wrong? You were waiting on someone. Uh, who, who, me? I, uh, uh... You didn't tell our friends from the other night where you to find me, did you? No, no, I, uh... Who then? Razma also has a bone to pick with me, you know. Something about not paying her for that last batch of stardust. It's not Razma, is it? 
Droger opens his mouth to speak, but the door bursts open before he can. Two blue Vesk walk in wielding dash codes and take up positions on either side of the door, making way for a third Vesk. This one, an old woman, green skin, eyes pale, a staff in her right hand, and flowing robes following her in. She waves at one, her hand at one of the guards, and they both, in turn, exit the room and close the door behind them. Luna, is it? The old Vesk asks, her voice resonant in the space, nowhere near as feeble as her appearance would suggest. Yes, that's me. Luna looks over, looking uh, askance at Droger. Thank you, Droger. You've been very helpful, but you may go now. Droger bows to the old woman and heads out the door, giving Luna an apologetic look before closing it again. The Vesk's piercing gaze never leaves Luna as her eyes narrow. You wish for fame? Excuse me, ma'am, but I'm not entirely sure what this is about. You I... wish for fame? Well, of course. What, what performer doesn't? The old Vesk leans in close, her breath hot against Luna's face, eyes piercing her soul. Luna leans back, looks to the door. You don't want it enough. You have, she looks to the door, other priorities. Luna's head snaps back to the Vesk, eye contact unflinching. No, I want it more than anything. Prove it. I would do anything. A smile creeps from both corners of the Vesk's mouth until it stretches all the way across her, her elongated face. Good. Fade to black. And we start, things start to sort of fade into existence. Uh, and we start to see the shape of a city and the surrounding areas. We start to see some lights. Um, it's a cold night on Akitan. Maro's billboards shine brightly, illuminating the night sky and embracing its ancient epithet, City of a Thousand Lights. The Exogeny headquarters sits in the middle of the financial district, quiet and unassuming to the untrained eye. More insightful viewer might see it for what it truly is. A small fortress, full of guards armed to the teeth and automated security systems, all guarding whatever secrets lay locked away in CEO Prendalk's office, deep in the bowels of the tower. It is here, in this very office, where a young Yasoki comes tumbling down from the ceiling. He lands on his feet, as he always does, and he brushes the dust, the dust from his filthy jacket. He stands tall for a Yasoki, his white fur matted with dirt and grime. He looks around, the darkness reminding him of their friendship, and he spots a safe at the end of the room. He turns, a sort of indifferent determination in his eyes, and he slowly stalks towards the end of the room, where, without warning, the room lights slowly swell to a dim yellow. In one corner stands an imposing but clearly relaxed Vesk in a white, tailored suit, plasma pistol in hand. Ah, crap, mutters Lisk. He spins around to face the Vesk. Hey, Thrak, just the man I was looking for. Long time no see, buddy. How's the wife and kids? Cut the crap, Lisk, says the Vesk as the relaxation leaves his shoulders. We both know why you're here, and we both know you ain't getting out alive. The Vesk raises his plasma pistol, taking deadly aim, and with a smirk he scoffs, 
goodbye, Lisk. As smoothly as he appeared, Lisk, in a puff of smoke, disappears into the shadows. A moment of confusion passes over the Vesk's face, quickly replaced by one of pain as Lisk appears behind him, burying a dagger into his back. The Vesk whirls around and fires wildly, hitting a lone bulb that was illuminating the room and plunging it back into darkness. A scuffle ensues as the two fight desperately for their lives. And a few moments later, the room is silent once more. A lone match is lit, piercing through the darkness of the office. For a moment, it hovers in the air, but then it climbs upward until it encounters something else. A cigarette. The flickering orange glow of the match transfers to the tobacco as the light of the match illuminates a single face. Lisk. He appears calm and collected. The only evidence of the recent struggle is the bleeding wound where his right ear used to be. He takes, he takes a deep drag of his cigarette and he drops the match to the floor, revealing the face of Thrak, bloodied and beaten with a dagger stabbed through his left eye and a chunk of ear still stuck in his teeth. Lisk reaches down, removes a small security chip hidden in the vest's personal communicator. Yeah, thanks for bringing this tough guy. Makes this next spot a whole lot easier. Lisk turns. He walks over to the security console and unlocks the safe with the chip and pops the door open, revealing a small, nondescript vial and a single data pad. Lisk stuffs them both into his satchel without a second glance. He takes another drag from his cigarette as he walks into the window and forces it open. He glances once more at the sharply dressed Vesk, now dead on the floor in a pool of blood before climbing out of the window, disappearing back into the night. And the scene fades to black. From the Digital Epic, I'm Fikel Tartaro. This is the Packed Worlds Daily. Today, the disappearance of the crew of the starship Acreon and the autopilot arrival outside of Absalom Station have many questioning what happened during the recent mineral scouting mission to the Vast, prompting two important questions. One. Does the collective of the miners who own the starship, known as the Hardscrabble Collective, or the mining conglomerate that financed the trip, Astral Extractions, have ownership of the aptly named Drift Rock? And two, what became of the crew that found it? I spoke with my colleague, Trostras Constant, Proof 2, about the implications of transitive planar travel and the ever-changing landscape of the drift. Also, a recent report out of Abdar Corp indicates that Nakondis, a prospecting colony in the vast, has been overrun by an unknown occupying force. Currently, the stewards have indicated that they have no responding ships in the vicinity, and that the colony is going to have to hold out on its own, bringing much criticism to the Peacekeeping Forces mission and Overwatch's ship distribution in the vast. I spoke with Anna Race, a former steward who worked in operations, about her experience with Bastion's management of resource, resources, and my colleague Chiron118 about the pros and cons of an independent Peacekeeping Force and the motivations behind their actions. It's fourth day of Desnus, AG three one seven. Was that right off the top? <laughs> and the news report ends. Just set the scene here. The it's black. It's everything. Everything's dark. We sort of fade into this view of Co. And uh, this thought about starships and how starship crews are family. 
They always have been. Even though sometimes they aren't very supportive of life choices. You hear this radio voice come across the intercom. We told you, she. Sometimes you gotta go with your gut. And my gut is telling me we get a bigger cut without you on this job. Real gruff voice over the intercom. Through the visor, the gas bramado spins slowly. The force of hitting the sidewall after being ejected was enough to cause a slight spin, one that can't easily be corrected without any propulsion. The suit is, of course, equipped with nothing of the sort. The suit that Ko now occupies. Listen, all that talk of family. Ain't none out here, you hear? I gotta look out for me, and you gotta look out for you. It's every man for himself, and you get short into the straw. Rizzo, did you truly believe I counted you among the family I spoke so highly of? Silence on the intercom. Frizzo was usually the more talkative of the crew, but this clearly stumped him. Then again, the exogen or whatever it was called job wasn't usual either. The crew of the Gasparamato operating out of the hive market, typically on Akiton, and the Broken Rock out of the Diaspora mostly handles small transport and salvaging operations throughout the inner planets. The large transport ship they looted outside of Arcanan in Lavara felt very, very different. The buyer, whoever they were, had a flight path mapped that avoided radar using the electromagnetic atmosphere of the moon. They had control codes that got the crew past the sealed maintenance hatches. They even had a map of the interior so the crew could locate and access a single crate that was in storage. On top of that, all of it was hidden from Ko until the last minute. Smuggling is never something he would have partaken in. A crackle comes over the intercom. A sigh. <sighs> Loose ends and all. Look, it's nothing personal. This job sets us up for life. Profits, profit. And when I heard they was cut they was offering, I couldn't refuse. I had to bring you along so we could blast some doors open. You know, all your explodey stuff and whatnot. I figure that if they found you on that ship, it would spell trouble. So I'm dumping you out here where they won't ever find you. I see. Well, I do believe tumbling through an inky black void of space is a somewhat fitting way for us to part after an event as dark as betrayal. I'm sorry it had to end this way. We was making good money together, but I gotta look after me first. The gray plume of the Gasparmato brightens as the ship begins to move away from Ko. Replaced by the deep, inky blackness of space. Planets and stars appearing one by one in the distance. Ko sighs. Family. Hmm. Family indeed. Ko muses as he spins off into space, wondering how to get out of this mess. I'm getting you out of here, says a voice, softly. Ko groans and opens his eyes. He's clearly hearing things. Told you, I'm getting you out of here. I at least owe you that much. Ko looks up. A small rat is staring at him through the now open doors of the holding cell. Lights are flashing red, but no alarm sound is heard. The sneaky little Yasoki must have disabled the audible alarm so that the guard station outside wouldn't be alerted. Look, I'm sorry. I didn't know that signature would get you in trouble, but I had things I need to get off his data pad, and killing him would have caused a bigger scene. Ko looks from the door to the barred window to the stellar moat that slowly spins near his left shoulder, reminding him of the never-ending tumble of floating through space and the loneliness that comes after the betrayal of a family.
Well, are you coming or not? Ko nods as the stellar moat rapidly descends to his palm and a beam of light forms. Lisk smirks, and we fade to black. Ooh. Cafe jazz. Yeah, dude. Hey there, space warriors. It's Krylo23, back with more info for you on Galaxy Dispatch Radio. Lots of stuff going on around the galaxy these days. Here's some of the latest. As we all know, the Driftrock, a.k.a. the Mystery Mineral, a.k.a. the Stone Wanderer, has been the talk of the Pact Worlds, with many in speculation as to its origin. After the Eoxian Embassy took it upon themselves to be mediators and sent in the Driftrock 5, images came back showing some scary ghoulies and what appeared to be alien-made caverns. I'm not a lawyer of any sorts, but if I were for the Hard Scrabble Collective or Astral Extractions, both of whom claim to have ownership, I'd stay as far away from that death trap as possible. Word is, there's something alive on that rock that killed the crew. Up next, and fresh out of the synthesizer, Paradise Resorts is firing up its reactors on the grand opening of New Elysium. Some folks out there are getting a special invite. Better keep that ticket close to the vest, if you know what I mean. Lots of people would kill to get an invite to Paradise Resort's location, and I ain't cruising for a bruising. And last, but definitely not least, tune back in tonight because Krylo's got a special treat. A young fella by the name of Jellic Folson stopping by the studio, digitally of course, to talk about what went down on the Condes, and trust me, you don't want to miss it. I've even gotten some reports that a crew out of Abdar Corp is responsible for some of the mess and that they've been going rogue. Word is, these guys take all the contracts the other cargo runners want. So be careful out there. Until next time, this is Krylo23, and you're listening to Galaxy Dispatch Radio, bringing you the real news all the time. Fade into the sound of a noisy, packed, but not too far off the beaten path bar. A band is warming up on the stage, preparing for an all-nighter. An amalgam of creatures, all with different features and of different sizes, nearly fill the space near the stage. The strange mix of smells of Akatonian brandy and goblin engine hooch fill the air, further concreting the approachable environment that the Vermithi Lounge has on the sky dock. I'm not saying it's not a quality ship. I'm just saying it has been sitting in that dock, racking up fees for years. Purchasing it from you would most definitely mitigate some of your storage costs. What I'm offering is a fair price. The android leans forward at the table, partially concealed by the shadow cast by the sconce-like lighting encircling the back of the lounge, her red skin still clearly visible. My friends work for Abdar Corp. She points towards the bar, where a group of four, each with a drink, appear to be laughing about a story one of the small ones told. The other Yasoki is fiddling with a strange mechanical creature. This isn't going to be used for smuggling. It's a good deal, Maz. The android leans back. Sedona, listen. I know we go way back. I remember what the stewards did when the dust clouds rolled across the colonies. And I'm still grateful for it. But... But what? Quips Sedona. 
You're afraid you might be missing out on something just because Sindari said it came from the Wreckers field? You're afraid he didn't come across it legitimately. Honesty isn't in his vocabulary, but there's no way he stole it. He's a salesman, not a thief. I'm certain he bought it cheap from a scrapyard and added a story to it so he could profit off of you. You've been on the ship, Sedona. It wasn't constructed by any of the manufacturers we've flown. He shrugs with all four arms and leans back, taking a sip of his drink before adding, I don't know where it came from, and I don't want anybody coming looking for answers. If I do sell it and it turns out it was stolen. Sedona takes a sip of her brandy, considering for a moment how she should respond. Maz, look. She grabs her data pad out, opens a file, and points to the screen. It has a registration mark right here. The ship is legitimate. Plus, there are thousands of smaller manufacturers, docks, even construction platforms that build starships. Just because Ringworks didn't build it doesn't mean it isn't a good ship. And trust me, Maz, these are good people. They need a sturdy runner they can buy for cheap that can get them to the vast and back without breaking down. They're about to start taking on long-distance missions, and this would help. Consistently help. Maz sighs. Fine. Tell him it's a deal. Just promise me one thing. He leans back. It's a unique looking ship. Don't let them name it something stupid. <laughs> Sedona smiles. Ha ha, I'll see what I can do. They shake hands. Sedona stands up from the table and heads back towards the bar. She misses the stewards, sure, but this is an exciting change, at least as much as it can be for an android. She retired with full honors, and when she left, she put the suit and the structure away to try something new. And after a few years, it still feels exhilarating. She walks towards the bar where the group of four are at. They still seems to still be laughing about something. You four are going to be glad you met me at Abdar Corp. She grins as the group at the bar turns around and realizes that they are indeed getting their ship. The scene starts to fade. We begin to zoom out as a vignette appears around the group at the bar. The bar itself fades into a dark circle as lines begin to radiate out from the edges, surrounded by a swirling pool of deep red. The amorphous colors begin to take the shape of an eye. It's Sedona's eye. Then her face. Expressionless, almost as if somehow she's powered down. She's on some sort of table, strapped in inside of a clear tube. The sound of a generator spinning up underneath her. Muffled voices in the background. A single red light begins to glow above her and suddenly a massive charge of electricity is released into her body. Her back arches. She tries to scream, but there's no oxygen in a vacuum. The electricity surge increases as the light starts to flicker and then dims, and the scene fades to black. What you see? Greetings. I recorded this message on the first day of the second week of the net. HE-126. I am hopeful that it will remain intact. This ship is known as the Rethnagol. It is my life's work. All who fly it will know its sleepiness. How? They will know its draw. I know not who will take it or how they will come by it. But I do know it from only the rules who make their own. Who live in it. Spend time on it. Call it their home. Come to know its true potential. Having found this data pad, means you've done exactly so. The Breath of All is no 
ordinary ship. It is a masterpiece of design, brought to life from the practice of Hunt's Eric Cole. By me, our master Galleon Core. It was built from the hulls of giant starships, melted down and cast anew. It is unique in design and purpose, though its potential, I am afraid, is not yet fully realized. The other houses no longer view how Severin Cole does work. I worry that our time is another. Days are another. Though I do not know if my vision will ever be complete, the Berethnagol will be sold to pay for additional supplies to complete my work. Should you seek to realize the fulfillment of this work, I have left this set of coordinates to a cave near the Wreckers Field at the edge of the Bravelands. Be warned that both the houses and the planet itself will not be welcomed. I bid you farewell, and I hope that you can one day see the lost sisters embraced. The pummeling shots from the Atlante Royal Fleet resound against the hull of the Indefatigable, nearly loud enough to deafen those currently trying to get the starship up and running. Above, a small fleet of Atlante warships fire railgun rounds down at the surface of the asteroid, clearly at the command of Zolan Ulavestra, maybe screaming out orders at the helm of the Star Runner at this point? From the navigational array, Lisk yells, Navigational computers ready to roll, Captain. Across the ship at the engineering console, Twix shouts, the Rune Drive has been remotely connected to the Indefatigable's computers. We can initiate the jump at any time. At the helm, just barely stable, Co adds. Ready to fly us out of here. <laughs> Sedona <worry>. 17 <laughs> at the Magic Officer Station calmly states. Put an honor flying with you. With the Indefatigable oh. now ready to fly, Luna gives the final command. Hit it. Twick presses a key on the console, and almost instantaneously, a bubble-like pulse washes over the crew without effect and fades into the darkness of space. The crew waits, expecting something, anything, to happen. A few seconds passed. Nothing. The indefatigable rumbles and rocks in place as the Atlantic gunships continue to rain down shots on the starship. The sensors indicate more ships are en route and are approaching rapidly, nearly within firing range. Zolan has brought the full weight of Household of Estra Tidal on the Rune Drive Thieves. The crew is at least strapped in at this point as klaxons begin firing, notifying them that air loss is imminent and the outer hull shielding has been breached in multiple locations. A second wave passes over the crew, this one brighter than the first, and upon reaching several hundred feet from the surface of the asteroid, it stops, neatly in between the indefatigable and the Atlante fleet that has been bombarding the ship, but just beyond Zolon's Star Runner. A shimmering rainbow travels across the surface of the bubble-shaped energy field, and then, a still silence. As if all the air was removed from the bridge at once, not a sound is heard. Above, the Atlantic gunships are still firing, but curiously, their shots appear held in space at the surface of the bubble, a suspension of the railgun projectiles with no explanation. And then, without warning, the ship, its crew, and a portion of Arelos are blinded by intense light and pulled from local space. And everything goes black. Twick! is the first to open his eyes. And when he does, he's both confused and panicked. In front of him lies not the science officer station, but a traditional burial urn sitting on a table in a beautiful garden. 
a grotesque, necrografted square of flesh next to it. The landscape of Kashak in the distance. Dozens of cybernetically augmented Yasoki stare at him, disappointment in their expressions. Twick notices his family seal on the urn and suddenly feels an intense pain as he looks down and sees that his hand has been severed, blood oozing out on the table. He blinks, the console's back, but everything is a strange shade of red. The ship rocks violently. Across the bridge, at the science officer station, or the engineer station, Lisk opens his eyes and sees the navigational array frantically trying to locate the indefatigable's position in space. Dots appear and disappear rapidly on the screen, some emanating irregular shapes, first an ear, and then a knife. A large dot on the radar approaches rapidly. As he focuses on the sound he is hearing, he notices that the klaxons sound like the bleat of the yearlings on Akaton. The, speech, the speakers begin crackling and the sound begins to distort. Ko's head bounces off the helm's console as another violent <laughs> quake shakes the ship. As his eyes open, he sees himself in the reflection of the currently cracked and seemingly powered-down display, but he's not a Lashunta. He's a Sheeran, but he has no skin. Viscera begins to slide off of his skeletal structure. A burst of light pours out of the helm's nav console. Ko blinks and now sees a familiar Lashunta looking back at him, but a green stellar moat is floating above his head. As the console flickers back to life, a warning indicates imminent collision, but nothing is out the front viewport of the, of the indefatigable. Luna awakens on the floor. A hand reaches out and she instinctively grabs it, pulling herself off of the floor. In front of her stands a Vesk, a familiar one at that, holding a microphone and a syringe. Behind her, a crowd of other Espraxa and Vesk, all with different instruments. The piercing noise of a positive gain loop makes her wince, and when she opens her eyes, she's back on the indefatigable, the crew all at their stations. Everyone notices the looming black shape at the same time. A gargantuan, planetoid-like object directly in front of the indefatigable appears to be moving under its own power, and rapidly towards them. The sound from the klaxons distorts and changes until a strange, ear-piercing sound is heard, a pulse that slowly repeats itself. And suddenly, the object disappears as quickly as it, is, has it, as, as it had arrived as another bright flash of light is seen. Everyone looks around. Absalom's station sits directly in front of the ship at a safe distance. The Star Runner sits idle facing the indefatigable. The crew has arrived at their destination, but not without a serious problem. As soon as the ship exited the Rune Drive's reality traversal, the control harness overloaded the Rune Drive with a massive surge of energy. The alarm on List's screen begins to rapidly blink red. The incredible idea to overload the Rune Drive and expand its field has resulted in a potential destruction of the local reality bubble around it. Within seconds, the Rune Drive begins collapsing creating a giant gravity well that nearly crushes the crew of the Indefatigable. In the moments that follow, portions of the asteroid collapse in on itself, revealing sections of Upper Orelos in the giant chasm that once separated the elevator shaft at the main entrance. With only moments to spare, the crew realizes they have no other option than to get outside of the bubble before it completely collapses. The ship rumbles to life as the crew takes off from Orelos in hopes of escaping. And we enter a fun starship chase sequence mm. everything fades to black and then all of a sudden we we hear this weird sound of a, a strange computer it wakes twick from his daydream 
And of course, we are always monitoring for irregularities in the data readouts. Any changes in temperature, vitals, or neuroactivity immediately alerts the technicians on duty, who are fully trained on the cryostasis equipment. The facility itself is... Twick stops listening. His mind is drawn back to his most recent lab experiment. A thought had occurred to him. Maybe an adjustment to the reticular arrangement network could increase the bond between the nanites and the targeted organic tissue. This could then increase the duration during which the regenerative process occurs, but then again, power would become an issue. Hmm. Only so much can be allocated to the bond before the other systems would need to be dropped. Do you have any questions, Mr. Quigg? Dr. Lethray smiles politely as she looks up from her data pad. Uh, no, I appreciate the thorough explanation. My real concern was whether or not I'd be able to remotely monitor the pod and still work on treatments, and you've adequately answered that question. Of course, and as requested, upon contract re-enrollment, you will have full access to the EA CryoModule's data output stream. Should you have any questions, please do not hesitate to contact us. From everyone here at Everlife Adaptation, we thank you for your interest in our services, and while working with us is never a desired situation to be in, we are here to help. Quick nods and heads down the long hallway to the elevators that will take him to the lobby of EA Storage 3, his mind still calculating the likelihood of success with the minor adjustments he's been considering. His comm unit beeps with a call, audio only. With a simple button press, the connection is bridged to his cortical implant. Uh. Tell me you have some good news. Silence on the other end for a few seconds. It's interrupted by a highly synthesized voice. Once I have some. Quick, stops moving. The transference redistribution you suggested is working as theorized. The combination of modified nanites and synthetic astrozoan protoplasm is showing increased levels of genetic pair replacement. And after introduction of the adaptive biochains, is there any improvement in cell formation? Swick asks. Another long pause. Sadly, no. The cells appear to reject the formation about halfway through. Something is still off in the nanites programming that we haven't quite figured out. Swick's shoulders slump. Well, send me over the data. I'll get back into the lab and run through the code again. Maybe I missed something that's corrupting the replication process. This time, the response is much quicker. Quicker, Dr. Quigg, you can't go back there now. The better of Purity's fight with the Remakers expands each day, and the lab is one of the isolated sectors. Can't you transfer the materials and data to somewhere safer? You know I can't. I promised. If it gets too dangerous, I'll take the research and go, but for now, I need to be at the lab. I'll send over a set of reconfigured instructions once they're done. Understood. The synthetic voice on the other end of the line seems hesitant to end the call. Be safe out there, and good luck. Twick presses a button on his comm unit and the call ends. He looks up at the elevator at the end of the hall, ready to return to the lobby and away from her. Seemingly to the air, Twick quietly says, Kip, have you finished processing the data from Site Zenith? A small robot crawls out of Twix's pack and parks on his shoulder, emitting a set of progressively higher-pitched and shorter notes. Ah, oh, perfect. Let's get back to the lab, see if we can make any progress. And, uh, keep your scanner on. 
Flitwick walks up to the elevator and presses the down button before he fades back into his thoughts on the experiment at the lab. And we fade to black. As you touch the console, a immediately the screen lights up and there is in fact a um, recording. Let me swap. This message yes. means that you found the breath in Torn. If lost sisters may finally embrace. The breath Nagal and the breath in Torn are not designed to fly alone. They are individual starships, yes, but they are also one. Builders of House Theron Cole and I constructed these ships to serve individual and connected purposes. Great drone houses fight against one another. Shedding kindred blood, strong in force, and weak in isolation. Only when they act as one, serving sister and brother alike, can they realize their true potential. These starships are a reflection of that reality. While the Berethnagal may be a long range exploration freight, and the Berethnagal tour a mid range cargo vessel, one is meant to receive the other. In this act, they become a singular vessel, both sleek in design and complex in capability. It is my hope that you are able to unite them and fly them as intended. I bid you farewell in this journey, and I hope that you may one day meet 